0: Thanks, Brand and Cynthia. Uh, Welcome again to Hiawatha Church. Uh, Like Chris uh, said earlier, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad uh, that you chose to join us this morning. Whether you highly resonate with this character that we just read about, Thomas, the guy who has lots of questions, lots of doubts, does not uh, understand or believe if Jesus did raise from the grave, whether that's your story, whether you see yourself as him, or whether you're maybe uh, not there at all. Maybe you have believed for a long time. We want to welcome you to our church. You are welcome here. There's a, a spot for you. You don't have to have all your questions answered. You don't have to know the Bible perfectly. You can uh, have great doubts and frustrations uh, and objections even right now. Um, this is a great place for you. So we want to welcome you to our church. This is a great passage to unpack if that describes you well. And even if it doesn't describe you, uh, this is a wonderful passage that helps us see the heart of jesus christ his heart towards us so right now we're in a sermon series we're almost done with john if you've been here for this series we've been in john for like a year and a half so we're getting close uh, to the end there's one more chapter after this chapter Um, but we're nearing the end so so far in john if you haven't been here jesus has taught he's done his signs and wonders Uh, we've gone through his execution and his death, and his resurrection. And now the past few weeks, from Easter on, we've been looking at a different resurrection accounts. So Jesus, uh, the risen, physical Jesus, has shown himself to uh, multiple disciples in multiple different ways, and that's where we pick up our story today. And so we read, uh, Cynthia just read our passage, and we see that Jesus did show up in his physical uh, resurrected body to a number of the disciples. Back in Easter, we read the account where Jesus shows up uh, at the tomb and speaks to Mary Magdalene. And then she goes and tells the disciples. Uh, last week, we read about Jesus appearing to most of the disciples, and they believe. But now there's just one uh, additional disciple who wasn't there. So today, we're going to look at uh, the disciple Thomas, or his Greek name is uh, Didymus. And you have maybe heard of this guy. Maybe you know nothing about the Bible at all, But just in our normal, everyday language, we talk about a doubting Thomas, a person who doesn't believe, and that comes from this guy here. So Thomas was one of the twelve, but he wasn't there when Jesus showed up in his resurrected body. And so we see this uh, exchange that he has. We hear Thomas tell the other disciples, I can't believe, unless I see the resurrected Jesus, unless I see his physical body, see the wounds, in his hands and his side, touch him. I just will not believe. And you can just hear uh, in Thomas's uh, voice, in his experience, and how he's uh, just sharing kind of his ultimatum here. You can just hear uh, and imagine what he's thinking. He's thinking, I, I just need to know that it really, truly is Jesus. That my friends are not getting fooled by a look-alike or by a ghost. Or by by something else. I need proof. We can hear Thomas uh, just thinking and saying, I put all my hope in this guy. I thought he was the Christ. I thought he was the king. I thought he was the Messiah. Yet he died. He lost. He was executed and buried. I just can't go through that again. So unless I see him, I will not believe. I got a chance to talk with, with a number of you uh, from our church about this passage, and we just all have these great questions. We're wondering, uh, why did Thomas not believe here? Did he think that all the other disciples were lying to him because they all believed and told him? Uh, probably, probably not. Uh, did he think that maybe they all saw a ghost or hallucinating? Maybe. We're not sure. Um, you may be thinking, uh, Thomas literally saw Jesus raise people from the dead, multiple people. So why doesn't he think Jesus can do this now? And the answer are, we, we, just, we just don't know. But I think we can have some empathy for this guy if we put ourselves in his shoes. If we try to understand his position, uh, I think we can be a little less hard on Thomas and see ourselves a little bit more in him. I think what's also powerful but what you see in our passage here is you see Thomas, who does not believe currently, And if we notice his situation or what he and the disciples choose to do, they don't separate, right? So Thomas, as the guy who doesn't believe, who has the big doubts, that says, no, Jesus didn't come back from the dead. You guys are wrong. I I won't believe it. He doesn't choose to leave, which I think is powerful. As we go through times of, of, of frustration, discouragement, doubt, disbelief, like Thomas, we should stay close to Jesus and his people nor do the disciples kick him out, right? They don't say, hey, we just made a new statement of faith this past week and you got to believe that Jesus came back from the dead and Thomas, you're not uh, believing it, so you're out of here. But rather, the disciples keep him close. And so I think that's a great paradigm and picture of the Christian life, the Christian walk, including church life. And so, again, if you are like Thomas and you don't have all the dots connected, you have big doubts, you're wrestling through things, you don't quite know who Jesus is, don't leave the church. Don't leave Jesus' disciples. There's a place for you here. in church, as we interact with and have people like that in our lives, sitting next to us in our community groups, in our families, like the disciples, let's not kick them out. Let's be patient and gentle and pray that they uh, would have their, their unbelief removed. And we can only imagine what Thomas is going through Verse 26 says that uh, it's been a week. So Thomas has been just waiting a week. Uh, His best friends swear that Jesus is back, but he just cannot believe it. And so we can kind of, as we try to think about what he must be going through, we can think of his story. Maybe you've gone through something pretty intense like this where you have to wait a week to get the results, right? Maybe you have to wait a week for the test results to come back before you find out if you passed or failed a class. Or maybe before you find out, is it cancer or not? Or maybe you have a meeting with your boss on Friday and you have to wait all week and you don't know, am I getting promoted or fired? Or maybe you ask someone out and you're not able to hear from them whether or not they they want to be in a relationship with you and you have to just wait. That, all those experiences, times a million, Thomas is just waiting. Why did Jesus show up to the others but not to me? Can this be real? No, this can't be real. This has never happened before. I want it to be real, but my heart just can't take more disappointment and more crushing despair. And so he doesn't yet believe. What I first want us to look at is in that state, what is Jesus' posture towards Thomas? What is Jesus' posture towards this disciple? Now, if we uh, think through what has happened so far, and maybe you don't remember, maybe you haven't been here for our series so far, but Thomas, uh, or Jesus should be mad at Thomas. Thomas has been a very bad disciple, a really bad friend uh, so far in the story, especially the past week. He abandoned Jesus in the garden as Jesus was getting arrested, and then he was not at the cross as Jesus was getting executed. He wasn't waiting at the tomb on the third day, even though Jesus said I will come back on the third day. I will uh, be raised from the dead. Thomas is not there waiting, not trusting what Jesus said was true. Nor is he listening to Mary Magdalene and the other disciples whom Jesus told, go tell everyone else that I am alive. So Jesus has lots of uh, rights to be pretty upset, to be pretty angry at Thomas. And even more than that, disappointed, right? Jesus could say, I'm not mad, Thomas, but I'm pretty disappointed in you. He could and should probably, yet uh, he doesn't receive that. What we actually do see is Jesus forgives him. Jesus offers him love and patience. Thomas doesn't deserve Jesus' forgiveness, his love, his patience towards him, yet it is exactly in this state of weakness, failure, and disbelief that Jesus moves towards him just because he loves him. Let me say that again. It is in exactly this state, thomass state of weakness, failure, and disbelief. That's when Jesus moves towards Thomas. Not because Thomas deserves it, but just because Jesus loves him. What's beautiful about Jesus' posture towards Thomas is that it is full of kindness and patience. It's interesting to see right off the bat, what does Jesus say to Thomas? He says, the, if you remember from last week, he says the same thing that he says to the other disciples when he showed to them. He says, peace be with you. He doesn't say, okay, Thomas, you get, uh, you know, kind of my angry eye because these guys are believing and you're the one who doesn't. But rather, Jesus says the same thing, His same greeting. The resurrected Christ's first greeting to Thomas is the same. Peace be with you, which is beautiful And on top of that, up until this point, right, Thomas is probably thinking, Jesus is mad at me. I've let him down. I've been a coward. I've betrayed him. I've abandoned him. I didn't trust him. I didn't listen to the other disciples. And the first thing Jesus says, he looks him in the eye and says, Thomas, peace. Thomas, you think we're at odds. We should be. You let me down. You betrayed me. You abandoned me. And the first thing Jesus says is, Thomas, peace. Thomas, peace. There's peace now between us. We're good. I'm not coming to judge you. I'm not coming to shame you in front of the others. But peace. And Jesus is not only showing patience and kindness and peace to this one disciple, but this is actually at the core of who Jesus is and how he relates to us sinners. This is the core of Jesus' heart. A posture of patience, kindness, peace, and love. Thomas, in many ways, is a picture of you and I. He's a picture of us who don't believe. Like currently, maybe we're still wrestling with all kinds of doubts or in certain circumstances we don't trust Jesus and his word. Or maybe you're not a Christian here today and you too are like Thomas, just saying, I, sounds too good to be true. I don't know if I can trust this guy. And so Thomas is actually a picture of all of us. And Jesus' heart towards Thomas is a powerful and very clear picture of Jesus' posture towards you and me. In fact, we read later on in the New Testament, Jesus, the Lord, he's patient with you. He's patient with us, not wanting any should perish, but everyone come to repentance. This is the heart of Jesus Christ, if you're wondering. It's not, I can't wait to get you. I can't wait to judge you, to punish you. I'm just waiting behind, you know, closed doors, just waiting for you to screw up or to say the wrong thing or to stop believing and then I can get you for it. But rather, this is at the heart of who Christ is. He does not want anyone to perish. Other place in the New Testament describes Jesus uh, as, or or God's uh, patience towards us. We should see that as his kindness, as his mercy. The reason why he hasn't returned yet or you are still alive is because he has patience with you and me, not wanting anyone to, be, to perish, not anyone to die and to be away from him. But rather, his desire is that everyone should come to faith and repentance. This maybe made you think of the parable, Jesus' parable of the lost sheep. Okay, there's 99 with the shepherd, they're good, they're safe, yet Jesus knows one is lost, one is gone, one is in trouble. And Jesus leaves the 99 that are close to him, that are safe, that are in the fold, to go find the one. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's playing this parable out with Thomas, the one who just doesn't believe, the one who is in danger. And he runs after him with patience and kindness, not judgment and wrath. And that is our story as well. I think for a lot of us, whether you know the Bible or not, you probably just know the phrase of a doubting Thomas, right? And so Thomas, in a lot of ways, has really gotten a tough rep. Uh, yet Jesus, again, not only is patient and kind towards Thomas, Jesus also knows our hearts, right? He also knows our minds in his powerful divinity. He's not just like looking at these guys' actions and saying, man, you guys screwed up, but he's also understanding what went through their minds and their hearts. Jesus realizes it's hard to believe in the resurrection, for a lot of different reasons. The obvious ones, people just don't come back from the dead. This has never happened before. But unlike popular cultural belief, which you maybe heard on, you know, just YouTube videos or people who are arguing against this, uh, the reality is that no one had a category in the first century for this type of resurrection. So, the disciples who loved Jesus, who who knew their Old Testament or their Hebrew scriptures, just had no category for the type of resurrection that Jesus is doing here. You maybe have heard, well, all like heroes or messianic characters or kings or gods in ancient myth and, you know, Egyptian myth or Mesopotamian myth or Chinese myth had their central figure come back from the dead. But the reality is, the way that Jesus came back from the dead just did not line up with any type of ancient thinking. So let's just talk first, first about like the Greeks. The Greco-Roman world, they believed that the physical was bad. They believed that these bodies were just prisons we're trying to get released from. So whether you study Plato or Aristotle, they just argue that we want to be released from these bodies, right? The spiritual is good, the physical is bad. Or the Jews, who did not quite believe that, they just disagreed on what the resurrection would look like. And most of the Jews that did believe in the resurrection, they, they believed at the very end of time, God would come back as judge, all would be judged, and that the righteous would stay living in resurrected bodies. They did not have this category of in the middle, not not before Jesus' return, not before God judges the world, but right when sin and death still are reigning, A resurrection happens nor did they have a category about their messiah their king their christ dying and then coming back to life in this way tim keller writes about this he says there simply was nothing like this in the jewish and greco-roman literature and legend for the gospel writers to draw on for the disciples to kind of utilize from popular culture and, and make up if this was a myth these were wholly new conceptual categories major departures from anything any religion or culture had ever imagined before. It was an entirely new way of th- to think of body and spirit. If you know much about, uh, this comes up in the Gospels a little bit, but if you know much about the, the Jews at this time, different groups of Jews believe different things about the resurrection. You have the, the Sadducees who don't even believe that there's a resurrection, the, the Pharisees that do, and they even try to trap Jesus, and they're fighting against each other. So it's interesting that uh, in Judaism, for, for hundreds of years, maybe even uh, thousands of years, they did not have a unified uh, belief on what the resurrection would look like. But immediately, once Christianity starts, Jesus' resurrection is foundational. It is the center of the faith. No longer do Christians disagree. Yeah, some think Jesus rose from the grave. Others think that that was just a really bad day, period, and, and, and it ended there. You read the rest of the New Testament again and again. The resurrection is true. It is foundational. It is the center of our faith. We even read passages that say, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are morons. People should pity us. We are fools. Your your, your faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, eat, drink, be merry, and die because that's all that there is. And so we have this huge shift from, I don't know about the resurrection. We kind of disagree. To When Jesus comes back, it is real is foundational and it sets the stage for the future of the church and the future of all those who believe in him. And we'll unpack that even more in just a few minutes. Jesus of Nazareth really was a human being who lived in this world and he was also God and he truly was physically raised from the dead never to die again. Let me be very clear. Maybe you didn't know that Maybe you think Christians say Jesus is alive, but we just mean that kind of metaphorically. Or he kind of lives in our hearts and in our memories and gave these disciples uh, a bit of courage. Or maybe he gives us kind of good life advice through these words he once spoke. No, Christians truly believe that God became a human being, did not lose his divinity, but added humanity to his divinity, and then died, and then truly was raised from the grave on the third day. This is the core of Christianity. You can't take this away. If you do, you no longer have Christianity. We can and do disagree on all different kinds of things, secondary things, outer rim things, but the core of our faith is that Jesus was raised from the grave. So in compassion and gentleness in peace and shalom, Jesus moves towards Thomas, showing him, the proof of his physical resurrected body. In fact, the New Testament speaks about Jesus' resurrection not only as the foundation of our faith, not only a real, true historical event that happened, but it's actually, it'll produce much fruit in a hundred different ways. And one of those ways is that Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruit of our resurrection. So maybe some of you grow plants. I grow lots of plants Not very good at it, so when plants come up in the spring, don't always know what it is, right? It's just a green little shoot, and not quite sure what will come from it. I look at the first piece of fruit to identify the plant, right? If I know there's a raspberry or a strawberry growing on that bush or plant, I know, I'm guaranteed what will come after that. In the New Testament, Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruits of our own resurrections. So for those of us who are Christians, we should look to the very first fruit as an example, as a picture of what our resurrections will look like. 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter in the Bible that profoundly and on so many different levels talks about Jesus' resurrection, what that means for us, what that means for our own resurrections. I encourage you to read it. Just a few verses from there help us unpack this idea. Starting in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits. Of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And so Christ is the first example, the first resurrection, the first picture of what our resurrections will look like. He has already been resurrected. Then when he comes, when he returns at the end of the age, his second coming, to judge the world, to fully defeat Satan's sin and death and to usher in the new heaven and the new earth and his kingdom fully, then those who belong to him, those who have trusted in him, too will be resurrected in new life and in new physical bodies like him. So although we don't have a ton of details and it might be nice to know all the specific details, exactly what our eternal lives and physical bodies will look like, we do get some. We look to Jesus' resurrection as a picture of what ours will be like. So just a few things as we look to what Jesus' resurrected body looked like, we see that uh, in some ways it was different. Now, of course, it was still physical. People touched him. Next week we're going to see him eat a meal. And so uh, it is very real and physical and material yet... It's also different in a lot of ways. It's fully, uh, all the effects of sin, fully removed from it, right? So disease, decay, sin, the corrupt world hurting our own bodies and our souls and our hearts, all of that is removed. So in some ways, Jesus is a bit unrecognizable, we see in some of these resurrection passages. And some theologians pick up on that to say uh, it's going to even be hard to see, or hard to Or we're going to look different because there's not going to be the effects of sin and death and disease on our bodies. Yet we also know that Jesus' body is similar to these. He doesn't get a new physical body. It's not like he jumps from one to another. But rather, it is that exact body. If you're a Christian here today, these exact bodies will be resurrected. With Jesus, we see uh, it is very much his same body, he still has his scars. So, in a strange yet important way, we'll talk about the details in just a second. Jesus doesn't have uh, all of his scars and wounds from his brutal torture. Like his bo- his back is not all ripped to shreds like it was right before he died. So, his body is redeemed, it's restored, it's recreated. Yet, he also chooses to have some of his scars, and we'll talk about the importance of that later. So although we don't have all the details, those of us who are Christians, we have this type of resurrection, this physical and eternal resurrection and these exact bodies to look forward to. Unlike all different other worldviews, Christianity actually has a very high view of the physical. Maybe, maybe you've thought about that. Maybe you've talked to other faiths, people of other faiths, other world views, and maybe you've realized, or maybe you haven't, that Christians view the, uh, the physical world, the material world, very highly. Actually, very highly, very more highly than other uh, worldviews or other religions. We talked about the Greek and ancient Roman worldview, that the material is bad and the spiritual is good. But rather, Christianity has a very high view of the physical. Uh, we see at the very beginning of the story, God, who is spirit, creates uh, everything. Creates the physical. Creates the cosmos and every single thing in it and calls it good, calls it beautiful. It is great. The physical is, is, is great. Yet sin poisons it and everything in it and that's why it's such a mess to this day. Yet right away, uh, God says, I'm going to, remedy, going to remedy this problem. I'm going to redeem creation and fully and finally restore it. I'm going to recreate it. I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth out of this fallen and broken one. And bodily, physically resurrection, Christians believe is what awaits us, those who trust in Jesus. So Jesus, which is kind of un- unbelievable to think about, is choosing to be in his physical human body throughout eternity. He'll still s- he still will stay fully God, but also chooses to stay fully human throughout eternity to show us the goodness of the physical so other views maybe say uh, these bodies are bad or this world is corrupt or it's falling apart or, or what's most important is what's on the inside, what you can't see, my thoughts or my heart. But Christianity says, no, the physical is true and it is good. Yes, it's corrupted by sin, it's, it's poisoned by sin, yet that will be redeemed and we will stay physical and spiritual throughout eternity. Let that be good news for you this morning. Most of us in this room... If we just spent three seconds thinking about it, uh, could realize the brokenness of these physical bodies, right? Whether it's the pain you have when you wake up every morning, maybe it's the disease that's slowly taking away your joy, maybe it's your mental health that is like a roller coaster, maybe it is uh, relational um, conflict and brokenness you have with other people that leads to your body uh, being hurt, maybe it's uh, wounds that you have, scars or stretch marks, broken bones in your bodies. But the, Part of the good news of today's passage is that these exact bodies will be resurrected for those who trust in Jesus. We, uh, all the effects of disease and all the pain that you have gone through will be removed. There's hope. There's hope for us that even some days think, Jesus, take me because I just am in so much pain and anguish here in this body. There's hope for us. So, Jesus' resurrection, not just the first fruits of our resurrection, which it is, which is great and a great fruit of what he accomplished in his resurrection, but Jesus' resurrection also proves that he really is God. Jesus' resurrection proves his divinity. And we saw thomas declare it but first let's look at uh elisa childers who's an apologist and author she writes about this she says there's several ways to know that jesus is god maybe you've heard jesus never said he was god it's constantine in year 300 just wanted to get more power so he made up the myth that jesus said he was god he wasn't god he was just whatever not true but elisa childers uh, argues there's several ways to know that jesus really is god he accepted worship. He allowed Jewish people to break the biggest commandment and worship a human being, not just Yahweh. He actually believed he was God. He accepted worship. He possessed all the eternal attributes of God. He did things only God could do. And he was given titles of deity. And we see this, three of these four things in our passage here today. Jesus is doing things that only God can do. He's demonstrating that he owns these eternal and and divine powerful attributes that only God has. He's overpowering death. He's defeating death. And We can imagine as as, uh, Thomas shows up in front of Jesus, we can imagine these flashbacks that he's having. Like, whoa, it is true. And maybe he's having flashbacks, or maybe John the writer is just hoping us as readers will remember these things that Jesus said before Things like back in John 2, Jews demanding of Jesus, give us a sign, prove that you really are the Messiah, that you really are God. And Jesus responds to that by saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. I'll raise it up again. The Jews thought he was talking about the temple, but John even writes in there, Jesus wasn't talking about you know, the enormous temple made of stone. He was talking about his body. And you can see, we can wonder, If Thomas is having these flashbacks, wait, he did say on the third day he would raise his body back up. Or later on in John 10, he tells his disciples, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. The Romans are not going to kill me. The Jews are not going to kill me. Judas is the betrayer. He's not in control. I am in control of my life. No one will take my life from me, but I will lay it down I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This command I received from my Father. And so we can just wonder if Thomas is, as he's seeing the resurrected Jesus, realizing he did say this was going to happen. He did promise. He said in powerful and clear ways that he truly was God. And as John is putting the pieces together for us as the reader, as Thomas is confronted with this proof that Christ really was raised from the dead, John can't, or, uh, Thomas can't help but give Jesus a title of deity. As we've been reading John, maybe you remember a couple, couple uh, resurrection accounts ago, when Mary Magdalene sees the resurrected Christ, she goes, Rabbi, teacher, my master, you are, you're alive, you're back. And now as John, the author, is crescendoing what Jesus is doing and has accomplished and who Jesus is, we see Jesus no longer called teacher, rabbi, but we see him called master. We see him called Lord. And we see him being called God. Rebecca McLaughlin, author, writes about this. She says, the crucifixion should have been the final proof that Jesus wasn't God. The proof that he could not oppose the power of Rome. The proof that he wasn't the great I am. And if Jesus had stayed dead, that proof would have been undeniable. Yet, he didn't stay dead. And Thomas knows this, and he knows what that that means. And his response is, My Lord and my God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And because Jesus is not just a great teacher, not just a man, not just a rabbi or a prophet, because he is God, he owns salvation. And trusting in him thus leads to that salvation. And so as Jesus looks to Thomas, he tells him, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas responds with, my Lord and my God. So yes, Thomas did want evidence. He did want proof. And he is getting that. But we also must see what's going on here, too, is that again in John, Jesus, the word of God, speaks and creation obeys. Jesus speaks and reality says yes and conforms to Jesus' command. Jesus looks Thomas in the eye and for the millionth time, reality obeys to what Jesus says. Jesus Christ speaks a new creation happens. Jesus, God in flesh, commands and reality obeys. Thomas drops his doubts and he believes. Thomas' eyes are open. He's given a new heart. His mind is convinced. And he declares Jesus to truly be master of his life and the one true God. Now, we use these words a lot in the church and in Christianity. If we're not a Christian here, we use these words a lot in our culture, belief and trust and unbelief and and faith. What do we exactly mean by this? What is Jesus saying when he looks at Thomas and says, Thomas, stop doubting, and instead of doubting, believe? What does Jesus mean when he looks at Thomas in the eyes and he tells him to turn from his active, his, his, his current, not just I have doubts, but Thomas, you are doubting Right now you are doing something. Stop it and do something else. Believe. What does Jesus mean by that? Many things. So let's unpack exactly what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. First thing he's saying is that salvation comes through belief in Jesus. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus. Not being a good disciple. Not remembering everything Jesus had taught him. Not not being a coward or not abandoning him. But salvation means faith in Christ. And notice, too, what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, believe in the Torah. He's not saying, uh, have faith that I exist. Right? So when Christians talk about faith in Christ, they're not talking about, hey, have faith that something exists. So we're not saying having faith that the Loch Ness Monster is real or, or believing that aliens exist. That's the same thing as when we're talking about believe in Jesus. Right, Satan and his followers, they, they believe that Jesus is real. They believe that he does exist, yet they are not saved. So when we say, when Jesus looks at uh, Thomas and says, stop doubting and believe, he's saying trust. He's saying trust, and trust in me. Trust in a person. Thomas, look at me and believe. Often we think of faith as more like blind faith or a leap of faith. Maybe we think about that great scene in Indiana Jones and Raiders, no, uh, uh, Last Crusade. The last one, or the third one, I guess there's more. The Last Crusade where uh, Indiana Jones has to save his father from dying. He goes to this huge cliff with this, it just, uh, you can't even see the bottom. And he has to get to the other side, but he has no other choice. And he takes a leap of faith. He just steps out knowing that he's going to fall to his death, but he has no other choice. That is not what faith is. Faith is not a leap of faith knowing we're going to fall. Knowing that it's just blind and that the truth is wrong. The truth is opposite. But rather, faith is trust in a person. Jesus says, Thomas, you know me. You know my character. You know my love for you. And you know I am who I say I am. I am God in flesh. Look at my hands. I am the one who is just on the cross. Look at my posture towards you. I love you. I'm patient with you. And stop trusting in your doubts, Thomas. Disbelieve your doubts. Doubt your doubts, Thomas. Look at me. Trust in me. And we too in this room, whether you're just hearing about Jesus today, whether you've known about him for a big chunk of your life, we know Jesus. We know his character. We know his love for us. We know his posture towards us. And he is worthy of our trust. And like the song we just sang before the sermon started, we can pray, Jesus, give me more faith. Help me to trust in you more and more. But I'm not trusting in my own intellect. I'm not trusting in having all the answers or figuring out all the doctrines or knowing this whole book or knowing all the answers that it brings up. But rather, I'm trusting in a person. Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, And so Jesus today is looking at you, you and me, in the eyes. Insert your uh, name in here if you'd like. I could do this, but it would be long and kind of awkward. But put your name in here. Jesus is looking at you today, and he's saying, stop doubting. He's saying with love, stop doubting, but believe in me. Trust me. He's saying, look at my hands and my feet. Look at the cross. Know my love for you. You don't have to have certainty. Certainty is not the goal of the faith. I am the goal, he's telling us today. So whether for the very first time, Jesus is telling you, doubt your doubts, trust in me. Or whether you're a Christian right now and he's encouraging you, saying as doubts come, as you wrestle with your current doubts, as in your future you're going to have some unbelief, trust in me instead. Jesus tells him, I think in this great, like, declarative statement, he says, because you see me, you have believed, Thomas. Now, I think often we connect this part to the very next phrase, the next sentence, uh, whether it's because that's what the translators do it, or because it just makes sense that that sentence follows this sentence right here. But I think if we remember Jesus' posture towards you and me, his posture towards Thomas here, he's not trying to shame him. He's not trying to say, Thomas, those other guys. The other ten, Mary, they believed right away. And you only see because you believe. I don't think Jesus is saying that here. At least not the main thing he's saying. Because Jesus loves Thomas. He loves people who are honest and wrestle with disbelief. And he's telling him, Thomas, you believe because you have seen me. He's declaring that. But he continues, not to shame Thomas, but the very next thing he says is, is that blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Jesus here, I think, is prophesying that his gospel, his story of his death and resurrection and ascension will be all that millions and millions, maybe billions of people throughout history, that's all that they need to believe. Jesus here is declaring that for forever, from, now, from this point on, millions and millions of people will believe without seeing a resurrected body, without getting to touch Jesus. And that will be enough for them. So the temptation is to think Thomas is the norm. If I don't have physical proof actually touching and seeing with my senses that Jesus really is resurrected, then I can't believe. The reality is Jesus says You don't need that. It's great if you have that. You can ask for that, but you don't need that in order to trust him, nor will millions and millions and even billions of people across the globe on every continent for millennia. They won't need that, but they will believe because they will hear this message. And so here we should see not Thomas as the norm and something we should ask for, and if we don't get it, not believe, but rather see Jesus' unreal patience and love towards him, and then he chooses to put this in the story so that we can believe. Jesus Christ, he is Savior, Jesus Christ is God. And if we look at his character, we've seen it again and again throughout John. But if all you know is just today, we see that he is a Savior and a God who is patient with us, loving towards you, he is kind. He is gentle. He is not a judge willing to strike you down. He is not an angry person who is vindictive, just ready for you to screw up. But rather, he loves us. And he moves towards us when we are in Thomas's state. Broken, doubtful, angry, cowardly. And Jesus moves towards us, showing us that we can trust him. And throughout eternity... Let's go back to the scars again. Throughout eternity, Jesus is going to show us that he is trustworthy. He doesn't have to, but throughout eternity, he's going to wear his scars, the scars in his hands and his feet and his side. His body will bear those scars to show us every day throughout eternity of his love for us. The only man-made thing in the new heaven and the new earth is going to be Jesus' scars. And he wants to do that, to to remind us every single day we see him throughout eternity, this is how much I love you. This is how much I love you. Tim Keller summarizes this beautifully. He says, the last time the disciples saw Jesus, they thought those scars were ruining their lives. And now Jesus is showing them that in his resurrected body, his scars are still there. Why is this important? Because now that they understand the scars, the right memory of them will increase the glory and joy of the rest of their lives. Seeing Jesus Christ with his scars reminds them of what he did for them. That the scars that they had thought had ruined their lives actually saved their lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love for us. That you did not leave us in our doubt, in our apathy, in our betrayal of you or or uh, abandonment god we in our sin are very much like thomas we are far from you full of unbelief we don't want to believe we think we're too smart to believe we just can't believe but you move towards us in that state with patience and kindness and love and you say believe you say stop doubting and believe Put your trust in me. It can be tiny. It can be a mustard seed. But don't trust in your own knowledge, your own work, your own family that you grew up in, your own bank account, your own resume. Just trust in me. And I will give you life. I will give you eternal life. Jesus, we thank you for that good news. We pray you'd help us to believe for the very first time, to put our trust in you, for those in this room who have not yet believed, who are now confronted with the true Jesus. And for those in this room who do believe, we pray you would increase our faith, that we would know and love you and your character uh, even more, that we would be excited about the resurrected bodies that you have for us, and that would give us hope as these bodies decay and break down and as our minds uh, betray us at times and lead to lots of unhealth. God, we thank you that you give us hope and that that this is an eternal hope, a physical hope. We thank you for all this good news that we hear Uh, described and declared by you here in John 20. Pray this in your powerful and healing and saving name, Jesus.